So, today's class, um, I'm excited for today's class to be dedicated by Perry Ayal, someone who I've gotten closer and closer to in the last uh, a couple of years and then even months, in honor of his wife, who is definitely one of the biggest fans of this class, Phaedra Ayal. She listens to this class, I think, always online. Literally before I say it, I get a message at home about how good or not so, no, always is good. How good the class was, no, thank God, she's always very, very, very positive. And so we really, really appreciate it, Perry and, and Phaedra. And like I said, we know I teach their son, who's a beautiful boy, wonderful boy, humble, respectful, and wonderful boy, Albert. And we hope, Bezat Hashem, that our Torah is um, something that I hope she appreciates it. I hope we did okay tonight. I hope I get the right message. And I hope, Bezat Hashem, that they continue together to build a home with children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren that are really following on a real strong path of beracha and happiness and Torah. Amen. Amen. What do you do when someone takes something that's yours? So I can give a lot of scenarios. Most people don't have robbers coming to their homes at night. But people do have sister-in-laws that hijack a holiday meal that they thought they were going to have. Or they have daughters who thought they were going to date a certain boy and a friend went and dated the boy and cut her off. Or they have husbands who had a business for a long time and felt like he'll do a favor and hire another community member to work in his business. And he works for him for 10 years as a salesman and then decides he's going to open his own business, take all the customers that know him and don't know the, the boss and compete with your husband. Are these stories, examples real? Do you need more examples? What do you do when somebody takes what you think is yours. So what we're going to try to do today is provide really a world perspective. And I hope this world perspective will help us to address this, this challenge. And I need one little introduction to say that if something happened to you that's extremely painful, then I'm not referring to you in this class. So if someone uh, destroyed your business, or if someone, God forbid, uh, lost a life, I don't really mean that in this class. It's going to be too painful to hear this message in that context. But if it's a regular, simple kind of loss like I just described, that is very big deal. I don't mean that's a big deal. How do you handle it? And I hope today we'll have the right world perspective to be able to handle these situations much better. We're now in the last parashah in the Torah. This parasha doesn't usually get its own week. This year it gets its own week because it's a leap year, so we have extra month. So parashat Pekudeh, the last parasha in the book of Shemot, the last parasha in the book of Shemot has its own week. And in parashat Pekudeh, we're once again in the Mishkan. Doesn't it feel like we're learning about the Mishkan forever? So anyhow, we're in the Mishkan, and Moshe Rabbeinu tells us the collection of all the gold and all the silver, and all the copper that they collected in order to construct the Mishkan. And I want to just focus on the first Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Ele pekudeha Mishkan, these are like the numbers, the counting of the Mishkan. Mishkan ha'edut, the Mishkan of testimony. 
My first question is, why does it say the Mishkan, the Mishkan of testimony? Like, why double language? What is the Mishkan a testimony of? What does the Mishkan testify for us? What does it teach us? What does it tell us? What do we learn? What kind of testimony is the Mishkan? And finally, my third question, which I think is the most relevant. How many Melachot are there in Shabbat? How many sent them? 39 Melachot. What, where do we know that there are 39 things you're not allowed to do on Shabbat? The answer is there were 39 jobs in the building of the Mishkan. So whatever was done in the Mishkan is what you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. Where do we get the idea that you can't cook, you can't bake, you can't carry, you can't build, you can't destroy, you can't light a fire? All of those come because those, all of that was part of the process of the Mishkan. My question is, why is the Melachot that we learned that we can't do on Shabbat, why is the source for that our Mishkan? So I want to give you my own little story before I continue, to give you my own little perspective of where I had the challenge that I alluded to to start this class. So I, um, one of the things we're involved in is a night program. So we have a night program for mostly teenage and post-high school boys. Well, we learn, learn two nights a week. We have a bunch of rabbis. We hire the rabbis, and these rabbis learn with small groups of boys. Beautiful. Um... So, a couple of years ago, the program was pretty small, let's say five or six groups. Um, one of my best rabbis that I had working with me, one of my best, decides he's leaving. He's leaving because he wants to start his own program. Now, he's one of the best guys. Like, he was our, one of our foundation people. Now, I mean, to say clear, he was very, very, very wonderful about it. He communicated well. He spoke to me about it. He didn't take any of the boys that I had brought to the program to him. He said, no, I know you brought them. I'm going to keep them here. I'm just opening and I'm not really trying to take boys from you. I'm going to take from different background, different kids, and different place. And we spoke about it. And the relationship through the whole thing was great. But it hurt. Because here I am and trying to build something and I want it to be successful. And now the main cog in the wheel, the main, main pillar here was was leaving. And like I went home and I'm like, God, I'm trying to do something good and you just took something out from under my feet and trying to move forward. You're making me move backward. It was frustrating. And like I said, it was not so bad because he was great about it and I had, he has a right to leave. He's not in jail. But it, 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 it hurt a little. It's like, why does anyone ever have to leave me? Why can't I just keep everything I have always? So, what? Well, think again. So, I want to try to give the right approach. Our rabbis tell us that the Mishkan represents the creation of the world. There's a Pasuki Mishle that says, Mihikim kol who's the one who built the world? And the Pasuk is talking about Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't build the world, but he built the Mishkan. And building the Mishkan is in some way the equivalent of building the world. It says that Bitzalel knew, who was the man who actually constructed the Mishkan, knew the words and the letters of how God created the world. And that's how he was able to create the Mishkan. Now, what does that mean? How is the world and the Mishkan the same? What is the Mishkan, what characteristic does the Mishkan have that the world has? And here's my point. 
If you ask me the main characteristic of this whole world and how it's constructed and how it's formulated and how it flows is this, is that the world is perfect. The world is perfect. The flow of things in this world and the interaction of people and being is perfect. I'll give you my... Another example where I saw this, and I mentioned this in a class two years ago when I went to this place. I'm going to take you right now, not somewhere in New York or somewhere even in the United States of America. I'm going to take you right now to the other side of the world. I'm going to take you to South Africa, the safari in South Africa. So I had an opportunity two years ago to go to the safari in South Africa. So first we went to Cape Town, which is a beautiful town. And then we go to safari. I had no idea what I was in for. I had no idea what it was like. We stay in a little lodge that has like special, only like maybe 12 rooms. Each room has its own thing. In fact, there's a little pool in the back of the lodge, private pool. And one day, like elephant came to the pool. That was just for the fun, like a couple of them. And then you go out into this safari in an open Jeep. My wife and I in a Jeep that's open. So... Top side is open. And you, what the safari is, it's an area that's like the size of Israel. Got it? And it's completely untouched. That means no human beings do anything to it. They don't heal the animals. They don't cure them. They don't feed them. The animals just do their thing and they roam on their own. And you, you have a driver and then there's a guy in the front who sits actually on the on the hood of the car, there's a little seat on the hood of the car with a gun, and just in case it's necessary, he has his gun. It's very encouraging. <laughs> Makes you really settled. The guy has a gun here. And, and you drive out. And then, you know, you can first go for an hour and not see anything. And then you can see some bugs or some beetles and some birds, and then some hippopotamus and some rhinoceros. And then you could all of a sudden see 20 buffalo, or you can see 5 giraffe. Or you could see ten elephants. Or there was one time where we parked the car and we were surrounded by six lions. It was very real. It was re six lions, like three on each side. It was very cool. Yeah, it was very cool. No, it's cool. And then an the elephant comes like, there was one time the elephant even came next to the jeep and like he's wagging his tail and like the mud even gets on you. It was really, it was sharp. It's not, listen, different. You want something a little different. Okay, you want me to drive and park in Brooklyn? I do that. This is once in my life I wanted a chance to do this. So, <laughs> yeah, you got the same mud, the same animals, yes. So, <laughs> but here's what I noticed after being there for a couple of days, is that it's perfect. It's literally perfect. It's, it's unbelievable how perfect the world is without anybody's help. It's just perfect. First of all, God makes that every animal, every creature has a predator. That's part of the plan. There's a predator, there's a, co a com competition, there's a, a bug and the, and the bird eats the bug and then something else eats the bird and then something eats the thing. Everything has a predator and that's on purpose. That's not an accident because the predator challenges the other animals. It, it, it grows them. It enhances them. 
Just like in a human being's life, the fact that there are sort of predators and competitors, those things help challenge us and build us and focus us and energize us and motivate us. I'll give you an example. And now I think it's time for the door. I'll give you an example. So one thing we saw is they drove, the guy drives the Jeep and they, the other Jeeps, like they communicate with each other. So you know, so they know where like, there's a cool animal and they go to that animal. So he drives the Jeep underneath a tree and on top of the tree we saw a leopard eating an impala. That's like a deer. Eating the impala. So like, I'm a man, I enjoy this. So ripping it apart, okay? So... I'm like, wow, that's so cool. My wife's like, that's so disgusting. And then I asked the tour guide, I said, like, okay, so what happens to it now? You got this leopard eating the impala. He's going to eat the whole thing. Like, what's he going to do? He says, no, no, no. This is perfect. He says, the leopard is going to eat all the main meat. Then he's still going to leave a lot of meat. Then the vulture is going to come, and he's going to eat more meat. There's still going to be more meat left. But at this point, the meat is going to start rotting. The hyena is the only animal that's able to eat rotten meat and not get sick from it. So the hyena needs to rot meat. Then what's left is only little particles of meat. At this point, the insects come, the bugs come, and they eat all the remaining meat. By the time they're done, the bones are squeaky clean with nothing left. They fall to the ground and they're totally sanitized so that no disease can spread in the forest. Wow! How perfect is that? That means that the, the leopard, the impala, the vulture, the hyena, the insects, and the rest have all flowing perfectly. And you start to realize Hashem's world is perfect. And when you th see things coming and going and it looks sloppy, it's really perfect. Now again, if you're talking about an epic tragedy, if you're thinking about that right now, I am not referring to this. It's, I, I am, but I'm not. I can't, it's too insensitive to say it that way. But I'm talking about the normal giving and taking that we see. Someone takes something from me. Someone borrows something from me. Someone's not nice to me. Someone took something away from me. I thought that was mine. Now I don't have it anymore. That was my customer. You took my customer. Hashem's world is perfect. I'll give you one more example. Some people don't like a ton of animal stuff. I'm just going to give one more animal example and then I'm done. But I... Uh, some people like love it. They, they love the whole animal and some people can't. So I'm just going to give you one more. I love this example. To me, this example has given me, since I've gone, this example has given me chizuk in so many scenarios. Okay? So we see a whole herd of buffalo. A herd of buffalo. Maybe there's 25 of them. So I'm like, wow, oh, that's interesting. He says, you realize that those, their nickname is the Black Death. I'm like, oh, why? He says, because if you get out of this Jeep right now, you're done. <laughs> so, oh, that's encouraging. So now, the herd is, let's say, 20 feet away from us, and it's like in the mud. So we're watching the herd. It's very interesting, and that's cool to see, watch, fun to see. And all of a sudden, you see one buffalo come out of the mud. Okay. And I could see that there's like a big bruise on his back. Okay? On the end of his back, there's a big bruise. So I'm like, oh, Hazit, that's terrible. He has like a, a big, big hole, like a big, wide hole. Two minutes later, I see a bird come and land by the hole. I'm like, you can't be real. The tour guide says, yes, watch this. 
And I watched the bird start pecking into the hole. I'm like, that is so horrible. How, how horrible is that? Like, how painful is that? This poor open wound in the buffalo, has he? And he has a bird that's going right in. He says, no, that's wonderful. I said, how is it wonderful? He says, you see, the bird nourishes from the blood of the buffalo. So I said, mazel tov to the bird, but the poor buffalo. He says, no, you don't understand. This buffalo has a wound. That wound is about to get infected. The bird, by pecking away, thinking he's eating, is cleaning out the wound so that the buffalo won't have an infection on his body. So, and the next time, a week later, two weeks later, something I was worried about, I said, one second, in the middle of nowhere, there's a buffalo with a bruise, and Hashem lands a doctor on his back to cure him. And Hashem can't figure out my customer? Hashem can't figure out my one little problem? The world is perfect. And that's how the Mishkan represents the world. Because the Mishkan also was this way. The Mishkan was a perfect symmetry of every vessel, every ounce of gold, every piece of silver, all fit perfectly into one another. And just like the Mishkan is perfect, God's world is the same perfect. And it's also, and in the Mishkan, the way it was, is that Torah gave us all the numbers. They collected all the gold and all the silver and all the copper. And you know what happens to be? That all the gold and all the silver and all the copper that they collected was the exact amount that was necessary for the Mishkan. Every Jew participated, and after everybody participated, the Mishkan had perfect dimensions, exactly what they needed, nothing more and nothing less. The world is perfect. So I'll go back to my little story. So this rabbi leaves me. For a year, the program is suffering. Something else happened, some politics happened, also caused some more, it got even worse. And now it's getting worse and worse, and I'm feeling like this buffalo with a bruise. And I'm looking for my bird. I'm looking for something to perfect, fit perfect. And then all of a sudden, about a year ago, I said, okay, you know what? That rabbi left. I need to have another rabbi that's going to help me. And since that time, the program quadrupled in size. Not doubled, not tripled. Quadrupled in size. And I think that rabbi is also being successful in what he's doing. But that's how the world is. It's perfect. Hashem says, I'm going to take this away, then I'm going to put this in place, and you may be able to build with this more than you can even build with that. This is what Hashem is doing all the time. Things are moving around. It looks sloppy. It's perfect. Shall I give you another little story? I'll give you another story. No more animal stories. I'm done with the animals. Are you okay? You did enough with the animals? Aren't they beautiful? Come on, I know you can't handle it. You can't handle the blood. Too much blood. I should tell it to men. Okay. Boys, we're playing Fortnite all night. I could hear animal stories. It was a young man who wanted to try and be a sofer. It happened a few years ago. Wanted to try and be a sofer, right? And a sofer, usually they start by writing Megillah. Because Seva Torah has to be perfect and Mizzatif didn't have to be perfect. The Megillah is, does, is not as strict with the rules. So this young man wrote a whole Megillah. It was a disaster. Like, no word matched the next, no letter matched the next, big letters, little letters, big letters. Kosher, but aesthetically, 
horrible to look at. So the boy's father, like, had a little mercy. So when the boy gave the Megillah to, I guess, a head so fair, the father said, okay, I'll buy it. So the father bought it, so at least the kid feels good that someone cares about his stuff. Then a little while later, maybe a year or two later, the father tells another major sofer, he says, you do me a favor, could you sell this? He says, I know you're not going to be able to sell it for more than $10, $20, but please, could you try and sell it? He says, okay, yeah, I'll try. I mean, it's not nothing near the other stuff we have, fine. This big sofer, famous sofer, takes the boxes of now dozens, maybe even hundreds of Megillot to the United States of America. Okay? He's going to bring it to America, he's going to bring it to New York, and he's going to sell the Megillahs in New York. He has very expensive, perfect Megillot. One wealthy man comes and says, let me see your merchandise. He opens it up, he sees one Megillah, another Megillah, another Megillah, all gorgeous, I don't want it. He says, another Mig- one Megillah, like on the side, small. He says, what's that? He says, no, that's not, that's not for you. Like, He says, no, let me see it. I don't, I don't preach anything else. Let me see that one. He says, okay, I'll take that. Let me see. He says, okay, I'll let me show it to you. He opens it up. He says, oh, this is perfect. It's perfect. It's, it's, it's perfect. He says, yeah, I'll give you $2,500 for this Megillah. The Sophia says, thank you. Now, let me ask you a question. I showed you all kinds of gorgeous Megillot. You didn't take any of them. I showed you this one where every letter is going a different direction and that's the one you chose? He says, yeah, I'll tell you why. He says, because all of the other Megillot, they look perfect. They almost feel like they were printed. They didn't look human. He said, this Megillah was human and I appreciate it. I wanted one that felt real and felt authentic and felt human. So that's the one I want. So some people tell that story as if, look how Hashem made it, that when Hashem wanted the boy to make 20, you know, the Megillah to make $2,500, he could bless it. That's true too. But what's also true is, sloppy is great. When the world around you looks like it's not so organized, I'm here to tell you, it's perfect. And Hashem is making the constant flow back and forth. And you have to be able to see that, oh, there's a plan. There's a point. Something's going to happen. Let me wait. Maybe in a few weeks. Maybe in a few years. But Hashem's world has a perfect flow. There's a statement in the Gemara that the one rabbi, excuse me, a, a Roman asked the rabbi, he says, what, since Hashem created the world, what's He been doing since then? Now the real answer is Hashem's continuing to create the world. But the rabbi says, since then, God is mizaveg zivukim. He's making matches. So literally it means matching a boy and a girl for marriage. But I think it also means more than that. Hashem is matching people up all over the place. He's breaking this relationship, ending this relationship, making that partnership in business, making that customer go here, making that buyer go there, making that neighbor move in the block, making that teacher come into the school, making that employee, making that assistant. Hashem is making matches all over the place in His own perfect, perfect way. You just have to see it. It's almost like watching someone put together a 3,000-piece puzzle. You ever see someone, you ever see a 3,000-piece puzzle? It's huge and there's a lot of little pieces. And so, when you have all the pieces in front of you, this looks like a sloppy mess. And then they start putting it, maybe they get a little border, and now, okay, they got the border, but now it's still not fully coming together. And then, they'll make, okay, they got together, after 20 pieces, they have one tree. Now I got the tree, but where's the next piece fit in? That's life. Life is 
puzzle pieces constantly being placed and constantly being put into place where things are moving and coming and going, but they all fit in a perfect symmetry. I'll give you a hard example. One hard example. A really tough one. And no, I'm not going to explain it, but I'm going to try to get perspective on it. Last week, this community had a crazy tragedy. This man, D.J. Cohen, who was diagnosed four years ago with pancreatic disease, he should have lived for a few months, lived exactly four years, literally to the day, and he passed away. And you're like, Hashem, what's the perfection in that? Now, the perfection in that, in him, I could show you, you could see what this man accomplished in his life. Because before February 27, 2015, he was a regular guy. And after February 27, 2015, when he got that diagnosis, he all of a sudden became a superhero. He became somebody that, had, that gave thousands in this community, not hundreds, thousands in this community, unbelievable perspective on optimism in life. All he talked about was Hashem and hope and belief and happiness. The man has a disease that he knows is going to kill him. And all he's talking about, and you see the videos, he was on TV once, everyone saw that video, he talks about, my job here is to give back to others, and I see people going for chemo with no help, how could someone go to chemo alone? So he's dressing up in costumes, in costumes, like Batman and Superman, grown man, father of children, dressing up in costumes to go help other people while he's dying. The inspiration that he gave, to this community, from his running in the marathon and speaking at the SBS marathon, it's unbelievable. No, it's like not normal what this man accomplished. He, he made a video, like a little selfie video of him at the Kotel, I think it was this summer, wearing tefillin. And he wrote a little poem about the beauty of tefillin. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I wrap it close, kiss me close to heaven. It's, I showed it to a group of boys. It was like, checkmate. Rabbi talks about tefillin, it's his job. A man, a regular guy who's sitting at the cartel talking about Hashem loving him when he knows of anything, it feels like exactly the opposite. His peace in this world is so clear how powerful and important his peace was. Now, how about his wife and children? I don't know the answer to that yet. The puzzle is still building. I don't know what Hashem has in store. I don't know exactly which direction it's going to go. But I know Hashem has His world, has a perfect flow. And you have to look for it. And you have to see it. And you have to expect it. Instead of saying, no, she took that from me. He took that from me. No. Hashem is running the world and He's making it flow in a perfect way. You just have to look for it that way. I'll give you another example. This is a more simple example. So, about 12 and a half years ago already, I joined a Magandavid Yeshiva. So, what my job description was at the time is not, not important. But anyhow, there were 10 ninth grade boys that would come to my house to learn one night a week. They would come in my study, they'd all learn. And good, they were learning, they were growing good. After two years, for some reason, they all got in this, I don't think this is my fault, but they all decided they want to like learn much, much more, and they want to grow and almost like become rabbis. I'm like, okay. So they decide they're leaving the school. So now, one second. Here I have, these are my 10 students, the closest kids I have in the whole school. And I'm working with them. And now they're leaving me. Wouldn't you be a little upset? Would you be a little hurt? Would you be a little frustrated? Wouldn't you feel like someone took something away? Well, you keep saying no. 
Okay, what? I was taught that these are meant to happen So that's what I'm trying to teach. Yes. So here's what happens. So now they're leaving and I'm feeling a little bit. Like I'm saying to myself, like, okay, you know, I'm just getting started here and I have students and I, you know, you, every rabbi wants to have students and now, like, they're leaving. And so they left and they continued their learning and they started going advanced learning and advanced learning and advanced learning. And seven years later, one of those boys married my daughter. <laughs> so I love that story because, you know, I love that story because it's all part of the symmetry and the puzzle of Hashem's world. So when that's happening to you in business, and you say, well, what do you mean? He's taking away my customer. He's competing with me. Competition is the way Hashem created the world. Because maybe that customer is not for you. Maybe you now need to be creative and come up with a new product. Maybe now it's time you have to promote someone else in the business, and they're going to do better than that first person did. Or maybe they're going to do different. Or maybe Hashem wants your business to close over the next three years, so you open something new. Or maybe He wants you to retire. There's a lot of different ways to see it. But Hashem is constantly building this perfect puzzle. And that's the view, that's the lesson that the Mishkan teaches us more than anything else. Is that the world, just like the Mishkan fits perfectly, they, everything fit into its sockets and into its loops and into its fabrics, we're all perfect, the world is the same thing. So here's the five components you need to have, and I'm giving to you briefly. Five components you need to have in order to see the world this way. Number one, you need to be open-minded. You need to be open-minded means we often get locked in. I was supposed to have that seder, and I'm not having the seder, that's bad. Who said? You were supposed to have that seder, they took the seder away from you, maybe somehow that's good. Maybe you're not supposed to have that work. Maybe it's going to help you build a relationship with a sister-in-law. What? Exactly. Oh, you wish someone would take your seder. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to give healthy perspective, and you want people to take your seder. Okay, the guy's dating your daughter, and he starts to date someone else. Now you're upset. Yes? Good. Now you're mad, and you know what? Maybe that person isn't. And in the moment, it feels, but be open-minded. Maybe she's supposed to marry somebody else. Maybe, and I know it sounds crazy, but maybe she's going to marry somebody else, and their grandkid's going to marry your grandkid. Like, the world happens this way. You have to be open-minded. I'll give you an example. Very recently, I was at a wedding. So I met with the couple before the wedding. I'm going to make a speech at their wedding. They asked me to make a speech at the wedding. Very close to the boy for a very long time. Good, Rabbi, you can make a speech at the wedding. Great. I get to the wedding. It's very recently, like a couple of days ago. I get to the wedding, staying under the chuppah, and you have to realize wedding speeches are the hardest speeches to prepare in the world because you have to get all the grandmas, all the grandpas, the live, the dead, the parents, and the kids, and the couple, and a message, all in two minutes. So anyhow, so it really is. Like, this is ten times easier than that. So anyhow, the whole thing, good, I'm prepared, I'm ready, I have my cards, the whole thing. There's someone there who's in charge of the ceremony, who's handling the ceremony. I'm standing there, I get there early, of course, no one tells you the right time, because just in case, so you get there early, you're waiting, you stand the ceremony, the rabbis have to wait forever and a half. Now we're up there, not complaining, but I'm up there. Right all of a sudden, it's like time for the, for the speech, and the person who's in charge sees like another rabbi come up, and he says, oh, the family wants you to say, beracha. so I'm like, once I have like my cards in my hand, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to say the family, ask him to say, now, this other rabbi doesn't know them from a hole in a wall. 
I mean, literally, I had to whisper the rabbi. I said, let me just tell you the couple's name so you don't look foolish. He said the name of the two families. He got one wrong. One out of two. Not the grandparents, the parents. He got one wrong. Because he had no idea. He had no idea. It said, the family wants to... He's like, ah, okay. So he goes and gives a 10-minute speech. So now the boy is shaking his head the whole time because the boy doesn't know this rabbi like never met him type. So now, I'm like, okay, I won't speak, right? I don't need a speech. I won't speak. So no, now the boy is saying, no, he wants a speech. He wants the rabbi who knows him. So he wants to make a speech. So where do I make a speech? So another rabbi is standing on the ceremony. He says, okay, make a speech after the berachot. Okay, fine. Make a speech after the berachot. Now the guy is leading the ceremony. I start making a speech. I cut it in half. The guy is leading the ceremony. starts tzitzing on this. It's like annoying. And then afterwards he says, well, I have to wait for all this nonsense of two speeches to my base. And it's all people on the ceremony. I cannot tell you how uchi I felt. I got out of the ceremony. I was like, I can't believe this. Like, I don't need this. What am I getting? Like, why am I doing this? It was a hard night for me to go in the first place. It was the worst experience. Like, could you imagine how uncomfortable it is? There's other rabbis. There's people standing there. It's like the worst. And I'm like feeling so bad for myself and so mad at this other person. Like, how could he do this? It was just, can't you? A lot, a little sensitive. Something. Say something. And like, the boy's family didn't even want this. What are you doing? And I went home, and I'm frustrated, and I'm upset. I'm not upset, but just like, again, it wasn't, nothing really mattered. It was just like uncomfortable. It wasn't embarrassing. It was just more uncomfortable, the whole thing. Then afterwards, I realized, you know, I started doing some math, like, like just some backtracking in my head. And I realized that indirectly, that person who's running the ceremony is indirectly responsible for every position I have. Every position, every shul, every school, every organization, everything I'm involved in, he is indirectly responsible for giving me all that. Now, he didn't want to, and, but somehow he was there before, after, course, indirectly responsible for every position I have besides the shul. Everything else is all a result of him. So I said, Hashem, I'm thinking this guy is the worst thing that ever happened. Turns out he is the biggest blessing for my life. You have to be open-minded to see these things. You have to look for it. You have to see, you know what, maybe this is good in a different way. Maybe I'm learning new characteristics that I never learned before because of this challenge. Maybe this competition is pointing me in a different direction. Maybe my daughter, by not dating for another year, is going to grow. Or maybe she's going to get more upset, and that's going to make her grow. Or maybe she's going to find... You have to be open-minded in order to see how the puzzle is fitting. You also, number two, you need to be patient. You may not see the answer tomorrow or the next day. It may take years. I have no idea. I'm being tired. By the way, what are we doing with the time of this class? When do we start? When do we end? <laughs> I'm continuing. You could go. If you have to leave, I'm not insulted. I understand. Okay? I went through the other thing last the other night. I'm better. Okay, good. I want to tell you a wonderful story. I went to pay a shiva call a few, two weeks ago. And you know my question I asked, so what's your favorite moment or whatever? And he says, no, every moment was favorite, but I'll tell you a little story. And this man, you might figure out who I'm talking about, and I have no problem with that, it's okay. This man lived in Myrtle Beach. He got married to his wife. His wife was from a pretty religious family, like observant and all that family. He had very little background. Living in Myrtle Beach, he knew when Kippur was, when Rosh Hashanah was, Literally didn't know Sukkot existed. Never saw Sukkot in his life. Never saw love in his life. Chanukah, they lit the menorah. Purim was not a day. It didn't even happen on their calendar. Anyhow, I don't know how the father let him, but somehow 
he married this this girl who's like from a really pretty observant made regular family. Anyhow, they moved to Myrtle Beach. They're living there for a few years. He says, one at of Pesach. My wife tells me, you have to go to shul to go get the magic cake. What's that? The cake that the firstborns eat in order not to fast. You have to go to shul to go get the magic cake. He says, okay. I get in my car. I drive to the first shul. There's nobody there. I drive to the Chabad shul. There's nobody there. I said, okay, there's no magic cake. I'm going to drive home. He says, I start driving home and I pass by the first shul and I see all kinds of cars in the parking lot. He says, so I get out of the car, I walk into the shul, I get my cake. As I'm there, I see a man who says, you know, your father has a store, you have a store, are you guys interested in selling? He says, maybe, actually, I'm curious, think, looking into it. My father happens to be in town right now, for Pesach, why don't you come meet with him? He said, Pesach afternoon, this man comes to my parents' house, makes a deal to buy our store. Two months later, the store is sold, I now have no job. So I have to move out of Myrtle Beach, and come back and move to New York, where my wife's family comes from. He says, I moved to New York, I started a business, I put all my children in yeshiva, and today all his kids are totally, totally, completely religious. He came from nothing. But what's the beauty? Is that that shul that he got the magic cake from, was a shul that his grandfather had built. So Hashem is doing the puzzle. You sometimes have to be patient to see the results. Number three is you have to be optimistic. See, what we do when something goes wrong is automatically wait for the next thing to be more wrong. Oh, this customer left, five more are going to follow him out the door. Oh, the business is in trouble, it's going to be a disaster. Don't be up, look for the, turn your focus from what's horrible. I told you that thing with the program. The whole time I think, he left me, he left me, he left me. No, stop thinking about he left me. Start thinking about, okay, who are you going to bring in new? What new things are you going to do? Be optimistic. How is this good? Instead of keeping look, keep on looking how it's bad, how it's bad, how it's bad, be optimistic. So number one is be open-minded. Number two is be patient. Number three is be optimistic. Number four is be humble. The whole world isn't yours. There's room for other people in the world. You're not great at everything. You don't belong owning everything. The foundation of the Mishkan was built on silver. Silver like nuggets on the floor that the poles of the Mishkan were built in. Why? Where did that silver come from? So the Torah tells us the silver came from the Mahasit HaShekel, the half a coin donations that every Jew gave. Why a half a coin? The answer is because a half a coin means that every person on their own is only a half. And when we unite, that's how we become whole. The foundation of the Mishkan is all these halves combined to building the structure. So you need to realize, and again, I'll give you from my example, you know what? He was able to reach boys that I can't reach. So I don't think I own the world. I'm supposed to do this. He's supposed to do that. Someone else is supposed to do that. That's how the world goes around. So this one person has one meal, one, this girl's gonna get married, my daughter's gonna get married, that person's gonna get married. Understand and be humble about it. And realize you don't own the world. Not everything is yours, and there are pieces for every person that Hashem made in the way it's supposed to be done. And finally, you need to trust. You need to trust Hashem. You know, yesterday my mom and I and Dr. Shlomo Lieberman did a, a panel on taking care of parents that are aging. And SBH, it was wonderful. And one of the questions, I forgot which question it was, when my mother just answered, she said, you know what, to me, one of the biggest pieces of advice I could give everybody here who is dealing with this is that 
put Hashem in the story a lot. When you're dealing with your parents, it says, Hashem, 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 see Hashem, see Hashem. And the truth is, that's what we did. For the three months we were in the hospital, it was all my mother talked about was Hashem, look at Hashem, look at... And when you have these things that you're going through, it feels like someone's taking something from your life, trust that Hashem has a plan. Trust Hashem. So if you have these five things, and you have to have these ingrained in you, I don't have enough time to like explain it enough and give you enough stories, but it has to be ingrained in you. To be open-minded, patient, optimistic, humble, and trusting. And watch how Hashem is building the world. When Moshe wanted to construct the Mishkan, I'm going to be only two more minutes. When Moshe wanted to construct the Mishkan, he says, God, I don't know how to pick it up. I don't know how to pick up the beams. I don't know how to pick up the walls. Hashem said, you try, look like you're doing it, and I'll put it up. And that's why the Torah says, Hukama Mishkan. The Mishkan like almost went up by itself. It looked like he was putting it together, but really God was doing it. That is the prototype of what the world is. We're doing our effort, we're doing what we think is best, but God is putting together His puzzle. Trust Him. See it. I could literally give you, if I had time, and if I didn't care about other people's feelings, I could give you dozens of stories. The problem is they involve people, you're going to figure out who I mean, and it might be insulting. Dozens of stories where I felt like I saw the bird on the back of a buffalo. Dozens of stories where I said, what is that? Oh, it's perfect. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Dozens of stories where you say, What's it? where is this going? Where is this going? Oh, that's where it's going. Oh, Hashem didn't want me to have this, or didn't want me to have that, and didn't want me in that position, didn't want me in that position, had this role, not that role, why is this happening, what's happening? A little bit of humility, a little bit of trust, and a little bit of open-mindedness and optimism, and boom, it clicked. This is the Mishkan, Mishkan Ha'edut. The Mishkan is a testimony to what the world is. Mishkan is Mishkan Ha'edut, and it's a separate name. Mishkan Ha'edut is a testimony to how perfect the world's puzzle is. Just like the Mishkan is perfect, the world is perfect. And that's why the Melachot, the things that we're not allowed to do to build the Mishkan, are the things we're not allowed to do on Shabbat. Because our work and the Mishkan's work are the same thing. It's the same, the world's work and Mishkan's work is all one symmetry. I'm going to give you one more story. If you have to leave, you can leave. I like this story. I'll tell you why at the end. So, this is one of those stories, those videos that uh, Rabbi Yal Gold, you know, he tells those videos. So he told one of these stories, and I'll tell you again why I like the story. There was this woman, her and her sisters would go on Erev Rosh Hashanah to go, or Erev Kippur, to go to the cemetery for their mother. Their mother passed away years ago, tragically. Anyhow, one of the sisters, one year, was not able to, was not able to go on Rosh Hashanah. She knew she wasn't going to be able to go on Erev Rosh Hashanah. So, like a couple of weeks before, her and her husband are driving, her husband's a rabbi, her and her husband are driving on Staten Island, and it's from our community, they're driving on Staten Island, and they realize, the husband says, you know what, the exit is right here. We could go to the cemetery right now. You want to go right now? She says, you know what, good idea, let's go. So, they go to the cemetery. His wife is praying. She's finishing praying. And he turns around and he sees a funeral, sees a funeral coming. He sees people coming to bury a man. And he sees there's only nine men. They need one more. 
So they asked this rabbi, can you join us to be the tenth? He says, yeah, okay, I'll join to be the tenth. They say Kaddish, the whole thing. Then the family that was burying the body, I guess, puts the coffin in the ground and leaves. He says, one second, what are you guys doing? Who's going to bury? Who's going to put the dirt? Now the tractor will do it. So they leave. This man now, this rabbi, is standing there by himself. And he says, he remembers learning, he remembers as a young boy learning in yeshiva that if a, a complete burial doesn't happen with the family, it's like a met mitzvah, it's like a beautiful mitzvah to be able to finish off the burial. He tells the man from the tractor, he says, you know what, I want to bury this person. Do you have a shovel? He says, he has a shovel. He starts burying with his own hands this random person. And he's putting the shovel in the dirt and the dirt for an hour and a half until the whole burial is complete. He does his job. He then puts the little pole, they have like a little stick with the name on it, he puts the stick with the name on it, and he leaves. He takes one glance at the name, and he leaves. He gets into the car, he tells his wife, Honey, this is very strange. We randomly were here. We didn't belong here this time. All of a sudden, there's nine people. They happen to need a tenth. Then they leave. Then I'm doing the whole burial. I need to research who this man was. Who is this man? So he starts doing calls for people that he knows that are connected. One of the people he knows is connected is the rabbi in his old yeshiva in Baltimore. So he calls the rabbi from Baltimore in yeshiva. And he says, Rabbi, I just want to tell you this name. Da, 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 da. Do, 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 is any possible that you know him? The rabbi on the other end of the phone almost drops the phone. He says, say the name again. He says, okay, that's the name. He says, I want to tell you a story. He says, when you were a young boy, you came to this yeshiva. Your father didn't have a job. Your father put together $300 for you to fly from Seattle to Baltimore. After that, you didn't have a dollar. Your father had no ability to pay tuition. The yeshiva needed someone to pay tuition. The yeshiva called up a man who sponsored your tuition. That man was the man you just buried. How crazy is that story? You wonder why I love that story? Because the man who did the burial was my uncle. Is my uncle. Rabbi Steve Ammon is my aunt's husband. Is the man, so I, we know it's true. He's the one who did... How crazy is that? But that man who did the tuition doesn't get payback until 50 years later. Because the next time you see someone do something that looks like they're quote-unquote taking something from you, realize, stop! And in that minute, download these five concepts. Download the open-mindedness, the patience, the optimism, the humility, and the trust to know that Hashem is doing a perfect job. If Hashem knows how to take care of a leopard randomly in South Africa, and he can land a doctor on the back of a buffalo. Hashem built the Mishkan to show us the Mishkan is perfection, and so is my world. So the next time you feel like something is taken from you, stop and wait to see the next piece of the puzzle. Thank you.